Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. In each episode, I'll take a look at the archetypal figures presented in the Major Arcana cards from the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck to discuss what each card has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. Throughout each episode, I'll offer reflection questions and suggestions for exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. If you'd like to support this podcast and the person who makes it, you can make a monthly donation through my page on anchor.fm. Your generous act of community care and reciprocity helps me to access the resources I need to make projects like this possible and sustainable. You can also support this work by sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thanks for joining me. Long after twilight, the magician, after an extensive evening of conjure and combustion, descends into the depths of the witching hour and reawakens in the dreamscape between the material world and the astral plane. In this liminal space, the magician encounters the next archetype of the journey, the high priestess. Draped in an ocean of blue cloth, a color associated with the throat chakra. She dons a double-horned diadem that cradles a pale blue orb that captures the moonlight. The high priestess does little to explain anything about who she is or what she knows and instead lets her presence speak for itself. A waxing crescent moon rests at her feet as she waits for the tides to rise with the growing light knowing that the truth will be illuminated in due time. Intimately connected to both the ocean and the moon, the earthly and celestial incarnations of the divine feminine, the high priestess is an archetype that teaches us how to trust our intuitive voice, our divine feminine knowing, in a world that seeks to gaslight us into non-consensual submission. She is more interested in empirical evidence than the quote objective truth, questioning the very nature of truth as a stable, singular constant. The high priestess directly challenges the misogynist implications of the word lunacy and doesn't waste any precious energy justifying her knowing. She understands that Claiming a subjective experience is not an admission of untethered or unhinged perspectives. Much like the waxing and waning of the moon, she patiently waits for the different facets of the whole truth to be revealed when the tide is high and the time is right. Some may claim that the embodiment of feminine sovereignty is depicted through the archetype that follows the high priestess, the empress. While this is a fair argument to make, 
I believe that the High Priestess is the embodiment of Divine Feminine Sovereignty because her essence and function is rooted in serving and communing with none other than herself and spirit. The High Priestess's focal point is her spiritual development and relationship to the Divine. The High Priestess is represented by the number two, and this numerological significance is echoed in several visual markers that define the messages and karmic lessons tied to this archetype. As the guardian of the threshold between the physical and the spiritual realm, the High Priestess stations herself between two large pillars, one black, one white, again echoing duality, while keeping a large scroll a sacred text with an inscription that reads Torah tucked in her right sleeve. The letter B is chiseled into the black pillar and the letter J into the white pillar, representing the pillars of Boaz, meaning in his strength, and Jashin, meaning he will establish, as detailed in the sacred Abrahamic text that describes the copper pillars erected on the porch of Solomon's temple a sacred space documented in the Torah as the first temple of Jerusalem. She keeps this spiritual text close to her person as she sits in front of a large tapestry upheld by the freestanding black and white pillars. The tapestry is decorated by a repeating pattern of large pomegranates, a fruit associated with biblical allegory as well as the underworld or realms that exist beyond this one. This tapestry obstructs our view of what lies beyond the pillars, a thin veil guarded by the unmoving presence of the High Priestess. She is the guardian of the unseen, the subconscious, and all that is shrouded in mystery. Sometimes the High Priestess is referred to as the Popus and is described to be the counterpart of the Hierophant card that appears later in the Major Arcana series. The High Priestess is allegorically associated with Pope Joan, who, according to legend, reigned as Pope for a few years during the Middle Ages. While historians today regard Pope Joan to be a fictitious legend, her story was real enough for Catholics and Protestants to argue over in the 16th century. Conflicting accounts led to the removal of all traces of her story from the Vatican's official records and eventually resulted in the implementation of institutional guidelines and rituals to ensure that future popes would be men. Seems like a lot of effort for something that isn't, quote, real. <laughs> But regardless of historical accuracy, this story manages to wring out some truths that reveal the ways in which insidious forms of sexism and misogyny run rampant in institutionalized sacred spaces. The symbolism of the High Priestess card reminds us that knowledge and what's real is often as subjective as the stories we might tell, but that there is valuable truth in allegory. Sometimes, allegory is the only thing that can accurately reflect our deep-seated beliefs and values. While the High Priestess does embody duality to a certain degree and is often considered to be a counterpart to and a feminized version of the Hierophant card, 
I think that we miss a lot when we get too caught up in trying to grasp the meaning of this card through gendered binarism. Again, because the High Priestess card represents feminine sovereignty and divine knowledge that comes from embodying that sovereignty, defining the High Priestess solely in relation to her, quote, male version, does both her and the Hierophant a great disservice. Unlike the Hierophant, who represents religious institutions and group identity that's built from traditional belief systems, the High Priestess doesn't commit her loyalty to any one leader or doctrine. With that said, it's important to keep in mind that the quality of the High Priestess energy is distinctly feminine, by which I mean that we're working in the area of our internal landscapes and learning how to pull our energy inward with this card. The High Priestess is comfortable with ambiguity and silence. She is uninterested in being perceived as someone who knows it all at all times. This defining characteristic is what endows the High Priestess card with its gangsteline. The energy of this card hits straight in the gut and she pulls no punches. She's the friend you actively avoid texting when you know you're making an unwise choice. She urges you to take sacred pause to contend with how deeply you have or have not met yourself. Consider for a moment the collective knowledge that we humans have about the ocean. We know frighteningly little about this massive body of water or collection of bodies of water, this earthbound spirit. A whopping sum of about 5%. That's about how much we know about our oceans. The awareness that we know so little doesn't undermine the significance of what we do know. And knowing humans, I sometimes wonder what terrors and exploits might take place if we knew too much. When it comes to sacred knowledge, depth doesn't just offer nuance, but protection. We can't work with what we're not ready for. Along this vein, the High Priestess respects the function of the unknown and has no motivation to prove to anyone through flashy displays of knowledge that she is qualified to uphold her role as the guardian of the gates. The High Priestess guides us through moments of sacred pause. As a child of the moon, she encourages us to anchor ourselves in stillness, trusting that all things eventually come to light and that each layer of truth is revealed in its own time. As a daughter of the ocean, she is intimately aware of the nature of truths, that there will always be more depth to it than we may ever get to know, and that the point is to dive in anyway. She understands that the discomfort of ambiguity carries a purpose of its own, and she isn't, therefore, one to readily offer friendly, consoling advice or suggestions masked as encouragement. She's the type to speak in metaphors and answer questions with more questions. Another card ruled by the energy of Virgo, the High Priestess reminds us that Yes, there is always work to be done, more depth to unearth. She wants to know about your hard-earned truths and how you got there 
and is the type to knock off points for not showing your work. When the High Priestess appears in a spread, it often indicates that the veil that separates the conscious from the unconscious, the material plane from the spiritual plane, has temporarily lifted. There is an opportunity at this time to examine your internal landscape and your relationship to interiority. As we collectively confront varying degrees of ambiguity at a time when we frankly have no other choice, and as we continue to witness the collective consequences of people doing everything that they can to not be left alone with their own thoughts and feelings, even if that means risking lives, we can start to see with sobering clarity that tending to our interior landscape is a form of sacred work. The High Priestess understands that as we take moments of sacred pause to claim responsibility for our healing and integrate lessons that have at some point left us upended, we build our capacity to sit with the enigmas that haunt us. The High Priestess asks, what needs to be re-examined or healed at this time in order for you to build the capacity to be able to sit with ambiguity and truly hold space, not resolve, just hold space for your internal chaos. The trick to working with the energy of the High Priestess is to let the answers come to you. The chase that your thinking mind craves might be thrilling, but when it comes to the High Priestess card, this strategy will only launch you right back to where you started. Again, this card asks you to pull your energy inward and prepare your heart space and spirit to receive insight. It asks you to examine the insecurities that compel you to take action at a time when you're being asked to just wait for it. Planting a harvest during planting season only leaves you with fistfuls of dirt. The High Priestess implores you to let go of the chase by dropping out of your racing, thinking brain that's on the hunt for answers with a capital A, and instead focus on cultivating the slower, calmer, deeper sense of quiet knowing that we call intuition. When the High Priestess card appears in reverse, it may indicate that your internal compass and the voice of your intuition may be drowned out by the mental clutter and opinions or judgments of others. It may also indicate that the information you currently have is too shallow to make any real meaning of. What's interesting to me about the High Priestess card is that regardless of whether it appears upright or in reverse, it is a sign to drop low, Go slow and listen to understand, not listen to respond. Now, I hate to be that person who recommends meditation, but uh, I trust that if you've made it this far in the podcast, uh, that you might be willing to give me the time of day with this. 
I don't think that meditation is the catch-all answer for problems that require other forms of care and support. So please know that I am not suggesting that here. However, because the High Priestess card carries such a meditative quality and urges us to drop into that liminal space, I don't think I can do this card justice without touching on the subject. One of the main ways that I like to call in and work with the energy of the High Priestess is through my meditation practice, which actually doesn't always look like a sitting meditation, though I think that there are benefits to that too. For me, I can drop into a meditative state while cooking, practicing my skills on my instrument, taking a solo walk, watering my plants dancing alone or listening to an album from start to finish without the added distractions of a commute or engaging in other types of work. As someone who has an air dominant natal chart, my thoughts tend to be loud and constantly moving. So if I'm having trouble settling into a more quiet internal space, I like to play a little game I call Audio I Spy where I try to listen for and locate the source of the quietest sound in the room. Guided meditations and other forms of sound-based meditations can also be helpful for those whose trauma history might make it challenging to stay grounded during prolonged periods of silence. What are some of the practices that you engage in that help you to cultivate a generative relationship to your interior life? When I think about the remarkable humans who heavily embodied the high priestess energy during their lifetime, I think about artists like Nina Simone and Toni Morrison, who parenthetically both happen to be Piscean women. I don't see a coincidence here. A few months before Toni Morrison's transition into the spirit realm, I remember watching a documentary on her life called The Pieces I Am, and during one of her interview segments, I learned that Morrison produced many of her prolific works by writing during the early hours of the morning, before dawn. She produced a body of work that many consider to be a form of sacred text. And I don't think it's a stretch to describe what Morrison did in her lifetime as spiritual work on behalf of the collective. Not to draw direct comparison with someone so incomparable, but without thinking much of it, I too have found myself awake, or more accurately being awoken, right around the witching hour while preparing my notes for this episode. I don't think that the witching hour is just a turn of phrase. Certain categories of information can only be accessed in the liminal space. The veil is much thinner during the early hours of the day, and the sacred knowledge that the High Priestess keeps is more accessible to us during those transitional moments. It may be worthwhile to track the places and moments in the day when you feel in touch with the liminal space. Liminal spaces can be time-based, so 4 a.m., or the first few minutes after you wake up from a nap, or maybe the last few moments before falling asleep. Liminal spaces can also be location-based, so you can visit spaces like a crossroads or an area where a stream of water meets a larger body of water, for example. Because the liminal space is so transient, there's not much that we can do in that short period of time other than wait. 
This is what makes the liminal space such a great place to get in right relationship with stillness. Because before you know it, it's done. And really the most productive thing that you can do in that short period of time is to get still and listen. This is where the high priestess does her best work. As we come to a close, I encourage you to be patient and present with yourself as you get reacquainted with the timbre, pitch, range, and rhythm of your intuitive voice. Thanks for listening.